ready and hey. inspiring teachers. Inspiring teachers. That's our how-to. You're listening to Value Adds Value. Inspiring teachers. Inspiring teachers. That's our how-to. That's our how-to. You're listening to Value Adds Value. Get it. Get it. Uh, value. Get it. Value. Uh, uh. Value adds value. Uh, uh. You're listening to value adds value. Inspiring teachers. Yep. That's the how-to. Value adds value. Inspiring teachers. Inspiring teachers. That's a how-to. You're listening to value adds value. Inspiring teachers. Inspiring teachers. That's a how-to. How-to. You're listening to value adds value. Inspiring teachers. Inspiring teachers. That's a how-to. That's a how-to. You're listening to value adds value. What? Welcome to the another episode of the Value as Value podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger. Um, I got to say first, uh, starting this episode, shout out to our friend Liz Kleinrock, because without Liz, um, and I know all of you know who she is and all the shout work she's doing, shout out to Liz. But this uh, gentleman we're speaking with tonight, uh, we wouldn't be connected if it wasn't for Liz. So thank you, Liz. And uh, without uh, any further ado, Nasser Muhammad, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Appreciate that, my man, and uh, definitely shout out to Liz. Um, you know, she's been somebody that I've uh, been using as a, a think piece and a think board and someone that can just, you know, use ideas. And, you know, like I said, uh, we've been knowing each other since high school. And so right. for us to both to both be in this work um, as educators and, you know, striving mm-hmm. for, you know, equity and uh, right. trying to break down those, bar- those barriers, it's, um, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the the funny thing and I and luckily Liz will message us, you know, once a month or once every other month and just check in how we're doing. Uh, but the funny thing is we we were the first podcast she ever got invited to do. Wow. So I told her like, wow, that's a I, <laughs> I have a screenshot in my phone of this like text conversation between her and I just so I can prove someday. Right, right. You got we receipts. Were, <laughs> yeah, we were the first one. So Liz, I'm not kidding. I was like, when you're president, I'm gonna be like, yep, I was the first, yeah. we were the first ones to have her on our podcast. So, <laughs> all right, to get started, could you just give us a little bit of your background and maybe a story that illustrates why you got into the education profession? Definitely. Um, so, I am a, a product of a single parent household. And uh, in our household, there was, I have four other siblings. And um, in my experience in education, um, I didn't have too many um, black male educators. And like I said, Liz and I went to the same high school, Sidwell Friends, um, which is, of course, everyone always says, oh, did you go to school with the Obamas? No, I didn't go to the school with the Obamas. Um, right. Because they, they did go there. But um, being there, there were not many black educators um, in high school. And oftentimes I, I, I wondered about that. And I just you know looked around. I, I never saw myself in education. Um, and when I say myself in education, I'm talking about the curriculum I'm talking about in leadership. Right. And I knew that, you know, my peers and people that um, I was growing up with that they struggled with education because they didn't see people that looked like them. Right. And so I read, a, I read a quote from Malcolm X and it said that um, education is the passport to the future. And so, I mean, I, I will always wanted to, you know, go further in life. And I knew that I needed education, but at the same time, I want other people to have those same opportunities as well. So um, I said, you know, this is a way that I can help people that look like me. And that's to be in education and show them that, you know, um, it is okay to be a, be a black man in education. Yeah, you know, when I grew up small town, Wisconsin, um, I mean, like 
all all white you know like every wisconsin is one of the most segregated states in the country because wow. almost the entire african-american population lives in milwaukee wow. it's, it's such a dominant state but you know then i taught in houston nice. and, my, and my eyes were open but you know the funniest thing i i'm i'm looking for new jobs for this fall and i found myself for the first time scrolling down like the pictures of mm-hmm. all the teachers and being right. like man there's primarily right like only white people and it's the first time i've ever thought to myself, i thought to myself like man is this is this a place that i want to be where right you know i mean because this that particular school is like over half um students uh of color and you know yeah. it's a very um especially um there's a large hispanic population there's a large somali population um right. you know and it's it's just it's so strange to me now, you know, 10 years into my career that it's the first time I'm starting to be aware of, right. of just that. I mean, because in my experience, every teacher I had looked like me. Exactly. And the, the crazy thing is, I did this thing called a uh, a privilege walk when I went back to um, my alma mater, Sidwell Franks. Um, shout out to Sidwell. Um, and one of the questions that I asked was, and so a privilege walk is, you know, if if it applies to you and you've been through it, you know, you kind of step forward. And if it ne- if it negatively impacted you, then you would take a step back. So a couple mm-hmm. of questions. One of the questions was, you know, if if you're a, a product of divorce, you know, take a step back. And one of the questions I asked was, if you studied or learned about your ancestors or people that looked like you in elementary school, step forward. And the only people that really stepped forward were the 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 white uh uh, white boys and the white girls because those mm-hmm. are the people that they learned about in the in, in the curriculum in elementary school and right. um seeing that as a privilege was something that was eye-opening not only to me but also to the other students who were, were taking part in this privilege well yeah you know there was it reminds me of there was a, a viral video that came out a couple of years ago where it was like a like a, a pe coach out on a field and was like hey we're gonna run a race for a hundred dollars and he listed like all of those things. And if you, if you came from a two parent household, if you, and all these white kids step forward and right, you had right. all of the, you know, the, especially the African-American boys, like in the back, you know, it's, yep. it's so, if you, had, if you, if you grew up and you had 50 books in your house, I mean, it's a number right. of different things um, yeah. that, that come, come into play. And so um, that's, that's what's become my life work really just to kind of uh, build bridges of access and just kind of just knock down those doors because, like I said, I'm I'm a I'm a, I'm a product of uh, poverty, and we grew up in that way. But at the same time, I had an opportunity, and I used uh, football and I used sports as as the catalyst and the vehicle to propel me to um, you know newer heights and just di- uh, different situations, different circumstances. So, so in in that regard, in terms of of athletics. Is it common for, you know, our students of color to see athletics as one of the only ways for them to get those advantages? It, or is that more stereotypical than actually true? Um, I would say it's a combination of the two. I would say that, um, you know, seeing that all the, all the time, constantly on TV, it's always constantly glorified sports and entertainment. Like these right. are the people that make the money. These right. are the people who are famous. These are the people who are always on TV. These are the people that are 
that have the most likes and most followers on Instagram. But the guy that lives next door to them is just an average dentist. Or what about the other person that lives uh, across the street? That's a lawyer um, or a doctor. Um, these people aren't aren't glorified, and these people aren't you know kind of uh, recognized in our community. So they're saying, hey, well, in order for me to change my circumstances, in order for me to change my uh, my situation, I have to become a basketball player, or I have to become a football player, or I need to mm -hmm. do something, uh, become a, a rapper or an entertainer to get out of these circumstances. But that's not the truth. You know, you can you're you're more likely to become a doctor to, to be, than to become uh, a pro football player or a basketball mm -hmm. player. Mm -hmm. I know this comes. I think what tomorrow is the NFL tomorrow, draft. They, yeah. said, they said that 254, 255 people will be drafted. That's that's the entire draft. And think about mm -hmm. how many people are on the football team. There's 53. There's 53 uh, players on the NFL roster. There's about 100 people on a Division One football team. There's 112 people. There's 112 Division One football teams in, across the, the country. That's just Division One. But then you have Division Two. You have Division Three. And there's yeah. uh, a number of people. And so if you just play the numbers game, you're yeah. more likely to become a lawyer. You're more likely to become a doctor. Yeah. But, you know, these things aren't talked about. And so we just really have to focus in on uh, the, the probability of um, our situation. So did you, did you kind of growing up, did you always see that you could use athletics as a vehicle to get to where you wanted to go or more – not like like athletics as the end game, but athletics mm -hmm. as like the path to to take you on this journey that you wanted to be on. So I, I knew that sports would take me to different uh, places that I had never been before, or places that I wouldn't necessarily go um, if I was just with my family on a family vacation. So for right. example, when I was playing basketball in high school, we went to we went to uh, Ketchikan, Alaska. I've never been to Alaska wow. ever again. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. this was like, so like knowing that uh, basketball or football, whatever sport you play can take you to different heights and say, Hey, like this is not the end game, but this is a vehicle or a catalyst that I'm going to use to propel me to different heights, build different relationships, gain different character builders. All these things happen through sports. They don't have, you know, kind of, they don't typically happen. Um, if you're, I don't want to say an average student, but if you're a student who doesn't really participate in extracurricular activities. Right. And so I knew that using sports would take me to different places that I probably typically wouldn't go if mm -hmm. I wasn't playing sports. Mm -hmm. So, so where, where did lifting as we climb, where did that come from? And, and what does that name mean to you? So the name came from, um, I was in, I'm, always, you know, looking at different people and always inspired by different people um, in education, life, culture, just um, just in, in the world around me. And right. so um, I look back at someone like Booker T. Washington, but then I even looked at someone that's modern, like LeBron James. Mm -hmm. And so um, those people, um, I think, like, for example, Booker T. Washington, uh, he, um, during it was during a time where uh, it was segregation. White people didn't really give African-Americans much of anything. But um, he was able to get money from white people to start up a university, now known as Tuskegee. Um, and he used that to help black people and, and African-Americans uh, get education, but also get trades so they could have right. jobs uh, when they left. Um, you, right. you look at someone like LeBron James. Um, he 
built built schools in his community. And so that tells me that even though they've left and they've got a certain uh, amount of pain, they they didn't look down on the people or they didn't look down on the neighborhood where they came from. They lifted mm. those same people up as they were climbing to new heights. And so that's mm. where the name came from. And so that's how we uh, kind of came up with the name. But essentially, uh, Lifting As We Climb is an educational consulting firm. We have a, a three-pronged approach. And so we're you know, mostly focused on community where we have uh, the schools, the scholars, and we have the parents all wrapped in one. If you think of something like, if you think of like the recycling sign, how that looks, mm -hmm. everybody's connected, everybody's in the arrow going around. And so um, that's, how we, that's how we want our consulting firm to be. We want everybody to be connected. We want everybody to have a certain level of responsibility so that um, we can use education as a vehicle to go to new heights. And I think we can do it. So, so when you, you know, you're, you're taking that three-pronged advice and, and I'm going to kind of frame this for you. So, you know, like I said, I grew up small town, Wisconsin, but I, I grew up in not a monetarily privileged family, but in terms mm -hmm. of structure and, right. you know, like parenting and family, like very, very, very privileged. So, you know, my parents were always there. Like I always knew that if I screwed up at school, like my parents would know. Right. And, and all those things. So when a lot of kids, you know, are more from your background where maybe they only have one parent or maybe they right. don't really have anyone that's a parent or, you know, guardian or whatever they call that. How, how do you get those people invested, you know, in, in their students' education? Like what especially do you try to do with, with parents? Um, so with parents, um, a lot of times, the parents really are, they're actually looking for an avenue. They're looking for the tools and the resources, but they just don't know where to go or where to get it from. And that's where we come into play. We as um, an educational consultant firm, um, we are looking for parents and we're saying, hey, I know you're frustrated. We know that uh, these things are, are bothering you or, or um, you know, causing some grief in your mind. And we want to be the avenue. We want to be the the team to support you because you don't know what you don't know. If you, if you don't know where to get this information from, or you don't know who to go to, you kind of just kind of stuck and you kind of go in the same cycle that, you know, education doesn't mean as much because we don't know how to get out of this situation. And so we come in, we provide those tools and resources to parents, whether it's tutoring, whether it's advice, whether it's consulting, just for parents who are looking for a better school or better situation for their child. And so mm. um, because of my background and my experience, um, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of different people in our corner that support us. So I, mm. I've worked in charter schools. I've worked in public schools. Um, I, attended, I attended one of the top private schools in the country. And so a lot of these people I still have relationships and connections with, and they're willing to help us because um, they understand that everyone doesn't have the privilege and access that's necessary to be successful. And so um, as someone who's come from poverty in a situation uh, similar to them, I want them to have the same opportunities that I have, the same exposure that I was getting. So that's where um, our, our firm comes in. So, I mean, based on what you've done, you know, as a consulting firm, but also in your educational experience, why do you think there is such a disconnect between parents and teachers and parents in schools? Um, like I said, you don't know what you don't know. And when you don't know this information, it's, it's kind of hard to ask the proper questions. Um, what is an IEP? What does it stand for? What's a 504? Um, what, is, what does it mean? And I think it also goes, goes into um, 
my, my first response, um, education. It, it almost um, is a separator for the different classes. You see what I'm saying? And so mm -hmm. like, if you don't have enough education or uh, the, I don't say the right amount of education, but if you don't have a good amount of education, it's like you can only take your child to a certain, a certain level. And once they get to that certain level, it's like they can't go anymore. They can't go anymore because the parent, who you know, supposed is supposed to be the leader of the household, um, can't take them any further because right. they don't know the they don't they don't have the resource. They don't know who to contact. They don't know who to reach out to, and so they kind of struggle and they kind of just kind of let the let the children go by the wayside. So, um, I think that's where the disconnect is. And sometimes, uh, depending on the the neighborhood or the environment, um, the the administrators are kind of kind of up in arms about you know what to do with the students and you know how to interact with the parents so i think it's it's, it's twofold it's a, it's a twofold situation that's why i said we work with the schools to mm -hmm. how, on how to better serve their parents but at the same time we work with the parents on how to better serve their children and students so that way when the students come back to school they're prepared they feel successful they know that and they know the things that they have to do to uh, succeed in class mm, yeah man like you said i, I think that would be a game, a game changer for a lot of teachers who struggle with parents to just, if they get to a point where they, you know, they realize, like you said, that some parents, just their ability to their academic ability or whatever is, is just tapped. They can't, right. they can't take it any farther. So kind of skipping down the question list a little bit to when we were going to talk about, but it, it, it feels kind of relevant right now. You said you, you really have a passion for um, working with, with, African-American boys, especially um, when it comes to, to their special education, right? That's, that's something yeah, that... Yeah, absolutely. So, so can you talk a little bit about um, first kind of what that specific population, what their challenge is, and, and how you strive to work with them? All right. So um, this is another one of the other reasons why um, I got into education. So, um, you know, when I was first coming out of school and um, I was applying to different uh, teaching programs, um, I had, you know, had been doing research. And I had noticed that there was um, an overwhelming amount of black boys being pushed into special education. Mm. And, you know, for the, for the most part, it's still happening today. And so um, I said, I want that to be, you know, my life's work because this, for the most part, it's um, a forgotten population. It's a population that's disregarded. Um, but at the same time, I think today, um, with mental health issues coming to the forefront, people are playing, paying more attention to mental health, but also special education and the needs of mm -hmm. those who have mental disabilities. And mm -hmm. so um, I think that not having enough representation um, in the school, especially at the elementary level, um, almost every school that I worked at that was elementary was populated by women. Um, mm -hmm. And when it comes to boys, like, you know, you, you want someone who, who looks like you, whether it's Latino, Hispanic, or if it's a black boy. Um, and so um, elementary, they just, it just, they just need more men in the classroom. And so I know there's a, you know, always a stigma of, you know, you know men being in the classroom, especially at the elementary level. Um, right. But it, it, it's, it's something that's very necessary because there's a lot of black boys who, um, get pushed into special education because they don't have too many, they don't have examples of right. men who look like them and represent them. Um, right. And I, when I say represent them, I mean in a positive manner because, you know, they have things on TV or social media that they come across um, mm -hmm. that kind of impact how they see things. But seeing someone that's positive in the classroom on an everyday basis 
consistently and constantly. Um, but and now I'm not talking about the 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 janitor or the custodian who works at the school or building services or, or groundskeeper. I'm talking about the person who instructs you on an everyday basis. Um, mm. I think that that's you know been my life work and um, it's it's like a thing like you can't be what you can't see. So um, yeah, that, yeah, and I and I can't imagine what it's like to be a young you know African American boy you know when you get to sixth or seventh grade the first time you have a male teacher like i i can't i can't describe the number of times that there was real conflict because those boys have never interacted with a male teacher and they they don't or you know a lot of times and grant in my defense i i didn't always handle it well myself I mean because if you're I mean especially like you're saying someone looks like you like I don't I don't understand the African-American culture like I don't understand right, the way right. they talk and the way yeah. you know they say yeah. certain things and they say certain things that I'm like what what did what does that mean and you know they what does that mean <laughs> you know and it, it's just and granted once once I started to realize that that was how important that is to those kids and you start to to not not try to appropriate it but you just start to accept it and learn a little bit about it exactly. so you can start to build those relationships um so how did you yeah. handle it like what, what did what did you do to me i guess i guess overcome i guess um this challenge because like i said i mean you're not the only one who's faced this problem right um it's a number of people and sometimes i feel that if if you're a black man or African-American man in education at the, elementary, at the elementary level, even sometimes middle school, they sometimes use us as disciplinarians or right. um, people to kind of um, help them with these, uh, I guess, challenges. And I think that it's important for everyone to understand how to work with all cultures, regardless. Right. Because these, this is the demographic that we work in. Mm. I think it's also important just to understand, like, when you sign up for, I'm not just saying you, I'm just saying in general. Just, um, you know the the neighborhood that we're working in because for the most part we're we're visitors in their neighborhood. Right. We come in for we come in for eight hours and we leave, but you know right. they kind of stay they walk home or they take the bus home. But for the most part, that's where they live. That's their neighborhood, and we're we're visitors. Yeah. And we kind of come in for a little bit and we leave out. Yeah, you know, and I think to your question though, I think once I I think it wasn't until I started like being confident in who I was as a person and as a teacher, and I started to really like I said, understand that my experience was, was different. When I stopped trying to uh, imagine these kids as growing up the same way I did and having my same experiences, and I started mm -hmm. to, to really understand their experiences, that was when I started to just let certain things go. And yeah, you know what I mean? Because it, it's just, there's so, there's so much of it that is just kids being kids and i think that's a part of it too exactly. is just understanding that kids that kids are trying to be kids so um in your work too you talk a lot about um implicit bias and, and you know that's kind of the topic we're on now because obviously like me and my story's common you know like midwest mm -hmm. small town kid winds up in right. big city <laughs> you know for first teaching job and right i mean it probably took me six years and at the time I didn't understand it as implicit bias. It's only been in the last couple of years as people, you know, like yourself and Liz have started to really, you know, come to the forefront and started talking to all of us about it. Um, 
you know, what advice would you give to, to teachers who are especially in my situation who don't, you know, predominantly don't look like their kids? Right. I would say, and kind of just follow through and just kind of say what I mean by it. So I would say the first thing is just kind of like expose your own biases. Um, another thing would be to kind of diversify classroom. Um, allow students the opportunity to reflect, um, but also have visible representation of, um, I would say, leaders or people from their culture. And so what I mean by exposure on bias is like, you don't have to say like, hey, like I voted for Obama, um, or it could just be you being open and honest about your own background and your own upbringing. Um, and mm -hmm. so you can tell your students that, you know, you're still learning, which can set a stage and just um, allow them to be open and honest about how they feel about different things. And so it's kind of just like um, avoiding the elephant in the room. Um, and and it's, let me, I apologize. Avoiding the elephant in the room um, is compliance with the culture um, of racial disparities. Uh, and just understanding that everyone has um, a different bias that they, um, they come across uh, when, they, when they're teaching. Right. And so I would say like, another thing is, like I said, diversifying your classroom, um, putting up people who look like the students in your classroom. Um, Latino people who look like Latino people, people who look like black people. Um, white people, every, I would say every person in your classroom should be represented because that brings a welcoming feeling. And it also shows that, hey, like our teacher cares about the people who are in our culture and the people who, are, who, who represent us. I would say also definitely allow your students an opportunity to reflect on your experience, their own experience, but also the experiences of the students in their classroom because everybody has a different experience. For example, like um, there, when I first went to Civil Friends, there was, um, there was a, I would say a different black experience or different African-American experience. And there were um, uh, African-Americans who were affluent, but then also there were African-Americans who come from middle-class or impoverished homes. So their experiences are all different. And I think allowing your classroom to be an open and honest, safe space will give these, um, will give students an opportunity to share how they feel about their circumstances, their experiences, but also you, like I said, you sharing your own experiences. Yeah. And I, and I think that's something, especially in the last few years of my teaching, I've learned is that, you know, especially in the classroom, like my experience of a situation could is completely different from a kid's experience. And, you know, trying to get to that point where we can both say like, this is my experience and this is your experience. And they're both valid. Like we both have a valid experience, yeah. but you know, especially between teachers and students for me, I'm struggling like, but how do we come together and come to kind of a mutual understanding of how we can better, you know, serve each other. And I think, like you said, giving kids the opportunity to talk about, you know, my teaching, you have to be open. I think you gotta right. be open to kids feedback. Like you have to you listen have to. to that. You have to. And I think that's, that's a, a thing. Like, I mean, building those relationships is, is very key. And I think something that you said was also important. Um, you said that, you know, sometimes they were using language that you just didn't understand. And I right. think that um, that's another important aspect, like allowing them to use their cultural language and, and the vocabulary that right. they use in their neighborhood, at home, or right. wherever they're from. But then also not saying, oh, like, you know, you can't use that, you can't say those things. But say, well, okay, well, what does that mean? Um, how do you, tell, teach me how to use that. Not to say that you're going to use it, but when you do use it, I know that right. it's not, um, inappropriate language you see what I'm saying so right. it's something that uh it, it helps 
it helps to you know make the the classroom um, a lot more comfortable for for everyone involved. So so kind of on that because this is something that I've struggled with, um, and I know I will struggle with, especially going back into you know a diverse school. You know, are are there certain spots and certain words and certain things where you, even if it's culturally you know appropriate to them. Are there certain words and certain things that where you draw the line where you you say, like this this is not acceptable, not acceptable. The N word that's the first thing that pops into my right. head. And right. the reason why I say this is because I know that it's constantly used in rap music. It's constantly used right. in this African American culture, and it's kind of used as like a term of endearment. But if mm-hmm. anyone else uses that term, it's like, well, wait a minute, stop the presses, cut everything off. You can't say that word. It's not mm-hmm. for your culture. It's not for your people. Like because of their uh, origination, the origin of the word, right. it it just it just brings up so much so much negativity when anyone outside of African American or Black people use that word. So I would I would say that's probably the first thing that popped up in my head to say, hey, like <clears throat> even though this is a part of our culture and this is something that you know we may use um, in passing or maybe on the playground or at recess or PE, I don't think it's um, appropriate for other people to use. Yeah, and really, so, I don't think anyone should use it. Really happens. Well, yeah, but but so you're saying like in that situation, if it, you know your example of using the N word, I think in early in my career, I would have just said you can't say this, and I would have just left it. It would it would have just been like no, but it, you know the way you're explaining is like, hey, this word is unacceptable or any reference to, you know, negative reference to the LGBTQ community or whatever, whatever it might be. And this is why. And I think that's what, you know, over the course of my career, I've gotten better at is explaining why I'm doing something. If I can't explain it to a kid as to why we, whatever it is, whether it's an assignment or a rule, how can I expect them to abide by it? Exactly. And I think that's that's really important because, I mean, I think that we're in an age of education now that um, we have to explain things to a certain depth and yeah. a certain, yeah. a certain you know, point of, of information and knowledge. Because previously, like when we were growing, growing up in school or when our parents were in school, it was like the teacher said, do something. That's what you did. There was no, yeah. well, why yeah. do you have to do it? Why is this? Like nowadays, you have to say, why do they have to do it? Why is it important? how it can be used later in life and how they can mm-hmm. use it in real world, real world situations. And right. that's just the time that we're living in. And so um, we just have to make those adjustments. Um, and it's, it's really important for us to, to kind of do that because um, right. the students are changing. The world around them is changing. Like we're in the age right. of information. Like yeah. when we were growing up, like we had to use dictionaries like, to look at words. I don't even know if they even have those anymore. And so because everything is online, right. all you have to do is type in a word and uh, right. it had defined the word for you. We had spelling right. tests. Like, I mean, I know in some classes, in some school districts, they still have spelling tests, but I mean, your phone will spell the word for you. The internet right. will spell the word for you. And so it's just, right. we're, we're in a different age. And so that's where just technology is everywhere. Yeah, so so on that, you know, how how in this age, you know, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about personalized learning. So how, how in in this era as a teacher, when we are no longer like the only source for them to get information. Like they have every bit of information they could ever want at their finger fingertips. 
how, how do we facilitate that? And to you, what is, what does personalized learning look like? I would say personalized learning is, um, you've heard of the term one size fits all, but I would say yeah. personalized, personalized learning is, um, a one size fits one approach. And so right. it's, is it, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's personalized to you. And so, um, it's the opportunity for you to use your voice and you to use your choice on what you're going to focus on that day, how, uh, how much of that you're going to get into and how long it's right. going to exist in, in that space for you. And so the way that you learn is not the same way that I learn. And the way that you grasp information is not the same way that I grasp information. And so that's how I was using. Like you said, we're in the age of information, but we have all these different um, tools to use. We have Khan Academy. We have a number of different right. tools. Right. We have Lexia, where, you know, we have a lot of different things where um, students can, I won't say that teachers are being eliminated, but um, we're more of facilitators if technology is used properly. Right. And so when I say right. facilitators, um, we like computers can't answer questions for students. They can't right. uh, debunk myths, but we can. And that's where we come into play. Right. So computers and programs will never eliminate us because students are going to say, hey, well, the computer said X, Y, and Z, or they, or I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding this concept. Can you help me explain? Well, then that's where you come in and you do, you can do some small group instruction, or you can do one-on-one -on -one instruction um, because the computer uh, these programs can give you a lot of different pieces of data to use and say, hey, well, mm -hmm. these four students are struggling with this concept. You can pull them one by one or you can use them in a small group to, to mm -hmm. reach all of them at one time to say, hey, I understand that you guys are struggling with this concept, whether with it, whether it's rhyming or uh, phonics or whatever it is, whatever the concept is. And right. you can sit down with those students to say, hey, here's what we can do because the computer can't answer those questions. It can just only say, hey, these four students or these five students or this one student is struggling with one concept or a number of different concepts. Mm. You know, and I, and I think what's scary about the, the term personalized learning is teachers think, oh, I have to make 25 different lessons for all these kids. And, and I don't think right. that's necessarily the case. And like you said, not, you know, there's not every student's going to struggle on every assignment and the same student's right. not going to struggle. But, but I really like, you know, the way you kind of sum that up as facilitators, because, you know, the other part, I think, and you explained it too. I mean, kids go to school for the relationship with the teacher, you know, that Absolutely. connection. And, and like you said, especially in, in situations like so many of our kids are in where they may not have the stable family life and, you know, that, that teacher is maybe one of the only stable adults that they have. So I agree with you. Like technology has made, made our job way different, but I don't think yeah. technology will ever eliminate our job. It will never eliminate us. But at the same time, you have to think about it. Technology, well, I would say in 2002, um, the jobs, um, social media strategics, it didn't exist. Right. It didn't exist, but through, right. but through technology and through social media, like, these things are here to stay and right. people have jobs because of social media and how technology has advanced and how everything is going, going, uh, going, playing a part. What about a mobile app developer? That didn't exist uh, back in 2002, <laughs> but people yeah. have jobs today. Or, or YouTubers. Or YouTubers or influencers, like people getting paid off of apps uh, and they make money. I mean, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, but that, that's just, that's the reality and that's the life that yeah. we live in. Yeah. And so um, these things didn't exist and uh, they, they exist now. What about a user experience designer? You know, previously people 
um, just had websites. And, mm -hmm. you know, pe people were just concerned that you went to visit their website. Now, you know, you visit a website or you sign up for a list, a listserv or you, you have an experience, uh, you get a survey. How did you enjoy your experience? How can we change it? How can we make it better? Right. These are all jobs now that didn't exist 10 years ago. But because of technology, everything around us, we have this information. We have this data. What about an Apple Watch? You have opportunities to keep track of your fitness. You have an opportunity to stay healthier. Right. Because of technology. Technology is all around us. So we really have to just really embrace it as educators. And it's not here to replace us. It's here just to really enhance the education right. that we're providing to our students. And if we use it properly, we can go to new limits and new heights. That, I was just thinking to myself, like, man, it'd be so awesome, like, daily or <laughs> weekly to have, have a user experience survey for your kids. Like, hey, right. <laughs> right, right this week, you know, what could I have right. done better? Because I think that that feedback, man, it, it's... It's key. It's I mean, so key. It's, and, it, and it's data that we use to make changes. And with the, the computer programs that we have, like, I mean, we can make those changes a lot faster. Mm -hmm. um, versus mm -hmm. um, whether it's, I mean, previously before it's like, hey, maybe you got a complaint from a, from, a, uh, from, a, from a parent or maybe your principal observed you and said, hey, like, try doing it this way or try doing it um, mm -hmm. another way. But mm -hmm. with the computer information, these computer programs, like, you get the information immediately and you can make those changes mm -hmm. very, very fast. Mm -hmm. Man, we could, I feel like we could go on all night, but I know I got to go on gotta, all night. We can talk uh, about this all day. <laughs> I, th I think what we'll have to do is uh, the next time we'll have to get my, uh, my co-host was not available tonight, but we'll get him on here and we'll, we'll bring you back again yeah. and we'll do a, do a three Absolutely. man. So, so as we, as we wrap it up, one question we always ask is if, if you can ensure that kids were taught one thing, what would that one thing be? I would say knowledge of self and history of their ancestors. I think that's very key. Whether it's um, you learn about Cesar Chavez or Sonia Sotomayor, or you or you learn about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Tamika Mallory, or Yara Shahidi. Um, there's a number of different people in um, whether it's uh, people of color or even um, white people that should be learned about in uh, in schools because these yeah. people help you to understand, have a, a sense of pride to say, hey, like you know, I can be great. And if the first time you ever learn about your ancestors is they were slaves or they were immigrants coming from a different country, it's like, well, right. damn, all I can do is be, be an immigrant or I came from slaves and now here we are. But if you understood that, hey, like our people in um, a different country were kings and queens and they were um, architects of civilization, you have right. a different mindset, you have a different outlook right. on life. And so I think that's very important, very key to have knowledge of self and have an understanding of who, who our ancestors were. All right. So before we ask you the final question, for people that want to connect with you, get get with your consulting firm, follow you online, what's the best ways for them to do that? All right. So um, our uh, consulting firm Instagram is lifting.climbing. Um, our email is uh, lifting.climbing at gmail.com. Um, and my personal or my, um, my own Instagram is at brother NASA. So that's brother spelled out and Nasser, N-A-S-S-E-R. It's the same thing on Twitter as well. Perfect, man. Well, like I said, man, I, I could go all night with you, but I know you got exactly. stuff going and I know I got stuff going, so we'll definitely have to have you on. And again, shout out to Liz for the connection. We really, really appreciate it. So final question, uh, as an educator, what do you hope when it's all said and done your legacy is? Um, my legacy, I want my legacy to be that of, of a bridge builder. 
Now, like I said, I'm I'm a, I'm a kid who came from poverty, and I, mm -hmm. I reached um, an opportunity to have access and privilege around people who had unlimited access and unlimited privilege. And so I want people to have that same experience. And so we're just trying to, I just wanted my legacy to be someone that built bridges of access, built, privilege, uh, built bridges of privilege and mm -hmm. uh, equity. Uh, just because mm -hmm. I think everyone deserves an opportunity to uh, be successful in, in all different ways of life. Mm. All right, man, we'll wrap it up there. So Nasser Muhammad. Appreciate that, my man. Coming, coming on Value as Value, man. We really appreciate it. Appreciate that. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Thank you again for checking out this episode of the Value Add Value podcast, episode 16 with Nasser Muhammad. Now, again, man, uh, thank you so much to Liz Kleinock for the introduction um, and for all y'all for tuning in, man. We really appreciate it. Um, super thrilled. Uh, Nasser was someone we just met, literally, and these have been some of the most fun podcasts we've done with people like you're just recording as we get to know each other. But um, like I said, Liz told us about him and said we should have him on, and she was absolutely correct. So thanks again for, uh, to Nasser. Um, you can look in the show notes to see the links to his website and all of his stuff. But uh, Lifting As We Climb uh, is the name of his organization. Uh, so please go out there and support it. If you would like to support us, here's a couple things that you can do. Uh, first, you could subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, uh, rate it and review it, or you could also share it with the teachers in your life. That would be huge. But um, we just created a Patreon account, and for those of you that don't know what Patreon is, it's a it's a online platform that allows creators to share their work in a space where people can support them monetarily because. You know, this costs money. It costs us money to have a podcast. It costs us money to do all these things. But the reason why we have a Patreon for this podcast now is because we want to put it out on more platforms. And right now, financially, we just can't do it. So, you know, with our Patreon, if we could even just start bringing in 15 to 20 to $30 a month, that's two or three more platforms we could put our podcast out on that would allow us to um, reach more people. And that's ultimately why we do this and, and what we're doing. So, again, thank you so much for checking out Value Adds Value. Um, we know the school year is ending. We know the end is in sight. But go out there and try to make sure that you're, you're doing the best you can for your kids. Do the best you can the rest of this year. Try not to start getting set up for next year already. But really focus on what you can do over the next you know, month or so to end this school year right. But this is Kyle Krieger again for the Value as Value podcast. Thanks again for tuning in.